0: Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is your host, John Landis. I'm uh, very happy to have you tonight for um, uh, the first of two parts uh, of an interview that we did with uh, Bill Melkowski not too long ago. Bill Melkowski is um, a wonderful jazz journalist, award winning uh, journalist who's written uh, something like 7,000 articles for various different journals, uh, 900 sets of liner notes. He's got uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of jazz and just a really interesting guy with some great stories. Um, you can go to his website, which is Bill Malkowski, uh, M I L K O W S K I dot com. He's got a blog on that site uh, with some uh, some great stuff that you would really enjoy. He's um, he's written a number of books. He's written a book about Jaco Pastorius, uh, a book about Keith Richards. Um, Pat Martino. Most recently, he has um, published, not too long ago, Ode to a Tenor Titan, uh, The Life and Times and Music of Michael Brecker. So let's go ahead and listen to uh, an interview that I did with Bill Milkowski, the jazz journalist. So welcome, everybody, to the Jam Session Radio Hour. I'm, as you know, your host, John Landis. And today we have the good fortune of having on our air Bill Milkowski. Hi, Bill.
1: Hi. How are you doing, John?
0: Good. Thank you very much. Bill will tell us about his life in uh, jazz business. And Bill is a, uh, a longtime jazz journalist, music journalist. And uh, so he has an anthology of, of uh, tunes and information in his, uh, in his brain. He's written, he's going to tell us th- thousands of articles for different, uh, uh, different publications and several books most recently a book on, uh, uh, on Michael Brecker, and he'll tell us about that. He's written uh, Jaco, Jaco Pastorius. And um, so we want to, Bill, we want to hear, tell us about some of your writing, tell us about your, your long career in New York and other, uh, other uh, areas. Uh, let's just get started and hear what you do, my friend.
1: Well, my career actually started in Milwaukee uh, in the 70s. I was uh, working for the local newspaper, the Milwaukee Journal, in the feature section, and I was doing interviews with musicians uh, across the board, people like Dolly Parton or Barney Kessel, Keith Jarrett one day, uh, Earth Wind and Fire the next day, so it was all across the board. Uh, That was around 76, 77, 78. I uh, began doing a, a publication that I started up, which was patterned after The Village Voice. We called it Cityside. And so I continued doing interviews with musicians, more focusing on jazz at that point. And I did that up until the time that I moved to New York in 1980. So, for about four years in Milwaukee, I really uh, got my feet wet in terms of. Uh, Um, interviewing. I'd gone to school for journalism and uh, did a bunch of uh, so-called straight journalistic writing for the local paper before I focused on uh, interviewing and music in particular. And of course, once I got to New York, everything accelerated tenfold uh, just by virtue of hanging on the scene. Um, You had mentioned that my current book, it's called uh, Ode to a Tenor Titan, the life and times and music of Michael Brecker, who was a great sax player that uh, I had encountered in Milwaukee before I moved to New York. But then after moving to New York, I began hanging at a club that he and his brother Randy Brecker had called Seventh Avenue South. I was there five, six nights a week hearing uh, both of the Brecker brothers and many other people, Mike Menieri and uh, Will Lee, Jaco Pastorius, it uh, was a great place to hang for people who were into the music that had shifted sort of from straight ahead jazz into more of a, um, a fusion thing that incorporated uh, aspects of rock with uh, jazz improvisation. So that was a focal point. That was a scene where I, I got to hang and um, uh began writing for downbeat magazine and many other publications and really have been doing it ever since up until this day. So it's been, uh, man, it's been 45 years, 47 years. I'm coming up on a half a century of doing this. That's so uh, cool. That's <laughs> and, so cool. Uh, of course, over time, I've written uh, more than a thousand sets of liner notes and thousands of articles for publications, uh, Downbeat, Jazz Times, Jazz Is. I currently write a lot for a, a publication in a magazine called uh, uh, The Absolute Sound, which is an audiophile publication. And I write for magazines in uh, Italy, Germany, Japan. I've had my books translated into different languages. And so this is um, a little niche that I've carved out uh i haven't uh man i haven't i just it just occurred to me that i haven't been in an office or owned a car since 1982. <laughs> that is so something. dig that dig that so bill
0: has a fantastic website um and uh it's it's bill uh dot com and milkowski is m-i-l-k-o-w-s-k-i so bill milkowski.com and i was poring over it last night uh and uh, to uh to get to know bill um so you really should take a look at this site we'll talk about it some more but we uh the way i learned about bill was through joel chris and uh and they, these guys have been friends and colleagues in the jazz business for a long long time and as some of you know from having listened to our recent interviews with uh joel chris that we've had on the jam session radio hour uh joel is 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 part of the hamptons jazz fest that we're doing we'll talk a little bit about that too but uh, he had a long career, has a, had a long career as a, as an agent. And I, I'm, so you can tell us about how you guys got together. And, and it, cause I, the, the pieces that kind of come together in the jazz business are fascinating to me. But another thing about uh, Bill is because of his longtime interest, which he's just described in the Brecker brothers. Uh, there's another parallel with the Hampstead Jazz Fest and the jam session, which is that, as you know, as those of you who are listening know, Randy Brecker, his brother has played with us, um, 30, 40 times or something over the years as part of the jam session and also the Hamptons <clears throat> Jazz Fest now, as has his wife, Ada Ravati, who's a tenor player, right? And I think this is interesting. Uh, you probably know this, Bill, but some recreations, for lack of a better word, of the Brecker brothers, uh, Ada has played tenor and she says that can be pretty intimidating, but uh, some of that's recorded. And, um, and I believe, I believe they played with Mike Stern Uh, I think maybe he sat in on some of that. I don't know if you know that or not, but Uh,
1: they've had that ongoing band. The uh, it's called the Brecker Brothers reunion band.
0: Yeah, yeah, the
2: Brecker Brothers. I've seen
1: them at the Blue Note. They've toured around a lot. They did some recording. There's a video. Uh, Ada is an incredibly strong player, and while she's also very humble, she fills those shoes. That it's got to be intimidating for her to slip into the role of Michael Brecker, but she does such a great job. Uh, just as Mike and Randy had a musical telepathy, Randy and Ada have one as well. And they really hit those unisons on those very tricky um, heads that Randy has composed for the Brecker brothers. It, it's a telepathic connection that they have and uh, uh, very energized. I love to see that band. It's sort of a rotating cast of characters uh, I don't know who's currently playing in the group, but uh, if you get a chance to see him, do, because it's strong writing, executed brilliantly. And Randy, I got to say, man, he's, his first album as a leader came out in 1970. And uh, what is that? 50 years ago? Yeah. He's playing yeah. is strong or stronger than ever right now. Yeah, His playing is uh, at such a high level. His uh, range of the horn, his clarity on the high end, his improvisational chops, he's a marvel at this uh, advanced age. He's playing as as good as he ever has. I know that he was honored recently by the uh, new Festival of Trumpet Music, an organization that Dave Douglas put together to focus on uh, uh, what is the trumpet doing now in pushing it forward but also acknowledging heroes from the past and they acknowledged Randy recently at one of their uh, festivals and it's very fitting that cat is killing it right now at the yeah. age of 75 77 he's ageless he's sounding yeah. great yeah
0: talk a little bit about uh because we're all interested in Randy and, and Michael in and your book talk about your your book and you know what put you down that pathway. And also I think we were talking earlier about Seventh Avenue South, which was a club in the city uh, yeah. in the past where you would hear them regularly. And also the group that clustered around that place that was part of this whole fusion movement with Jaco and, and others.
1: Yeah, it was uh, as uh, Barry Fetterty, the guitarist who later, who, who, played in the, who had played in the Brecker Brothers band as he said, you know, we would show up at two in the morning and the place would still be rolling. Uh, It was a late night hang. Uh, Steve Gadd and Mike Manieri and Tony Levin, Miles Davis would hang out there. There's this uh, great picture that's in the book, a photograph that someone took of uh, Mike playing in Kazumi Watanabe's band. Um, And... uh, Hanging out near the bandstand is Miles Davis and Chaka Khan, just like digging the band. Yeah, uh, and that's the type of uh, audience. Uh, I remember seeing Ed Bradley if you remember him from sure, sixty minutes. Sixty minutes. He he was a jazz fan. He was I remember nice. uh, he he's I think he's from Philly, and he and Jaco were pals. Uh, Jaco was from Philadelphia as well. Michael and Randy are from Philadelphia. Uh, outside of just a suburb outside of Philly, uh, Cheltenham. Um, but yeah, that club was really a, a magnet for a, a certain type of music. It was jazz, but it was uh, that type of jazz that uh, some people called fusion, but it was mixing rock elements and, uh, you know, it was exciting. There was another uh, parallel scene going on at Bradley's, which was more uh, bebop straight ahead. Uh, A lot of the people that hung at 7th Avenue also hung there, uh, including Jocko and Randy and Michael and other people. But these were scenes that existed. And for me coming into New York in 1980 from Milwaukee, it was just incredibly exciting to uh, be in the room where most of the audience was also working musicians who were digging that scene. So uh, that's something that I kind of came up with and, uh, I should say that Mike and Randy, you know, they came from a very musical family. Michael's uh, and Randy's father, Bobby, was a pianist and a songwriter. They had a, a organ and a set of drums in the family living room, and they would have family jams. The Mike and Randy's sister Emily was a really fine piano player as well, and uh, their mutual friend Mark Copeland. Um, Uh, would come over and uh, jam with them as well. So they would have regular Sunday jams growing up as kids, little kids. Uh, Mike originally on clarinet. And uh, Randy talks about how they had uh, uh, these these sort of improv jams, the two of them, Randy on trumpet, Mike on clarinet, in the bathroom because it had such great resonance with all the tile. And they would do like little improv uh, sessions in the bathroom. When uh, Mike was, you know, just beginning, he was on clarinet. Randy was uh, four years older, so he um, was already out of the house by the time Mike was not yet committed to music. Randy left to go to Indiana University and uh, later, soon after, hit the road with uh, Horace Silver and Billy Cobb was in that band. Meanwhile, Mike is back at home, sort of halfway committed to clarinet but also equally interested in basketball being six foot four and a half he was you know equipped to play basketball was very interested in it was also good at it so he was sort of equally committed to basketball and as randy mentioned also science he had a chemistry set down in the basement and so when randy left for indiana he didn't know whether mike would become a musician or a scientist. And then he commented that, uh, interestingly, later on, Mike approached his instrument like a scientist, very analytical, very methodical about woodshedding on specific things on the instrument, trying to uh, learn new techniques and push forward with the instrument. Did it in an almost um, systematic, scientific way. But uh, it was around the age of 16 that, that Mike eventually committed to music, and it was partly due to seeing John Coltrane in, in concert uh, when Mike was uh, 17. He, would actually, he had actually started taking lessons with a sax player in Philadelphia named Vince Trombetta, who was a pro who had uh, actually – Uh, shared the bandstand with John Coltrane earlier in his career. And then at this point was working in the house band for the Mike Douglas show, which broadcast out of Philadelphia. Mike began studying with him uh, at the age of 16. He had to jump on a a subway and take two subway to a bus to get to this guy's house. So it showed how committed at an early age Mike was to learning the instrument and, Vince sort of put him, he was playing alto at the time, and Vince sort of noted by the way he was playing that he was more suited to the tenor sax. And he's like, you know, you're playing not like Phil Woods or Charlie Parker, you're sounding like John Coltrane. You should switch to tenor. And it was around that time that Mike saw Train at Temple University in a concert um, in 66. And he found that so inspiring that it became really his North star in terms of uh, what he wanted to pursue at that point, being so inspired by seeing Train, getting the facility going on the tenor sax and getting the positive feedback for sort of being preternaturally gifted on the instrument. He committed to music and, and he was equally committed to woodshedding and so he developed remarkably fast. Meanwhile, Randy's over at Indiana U- University seeing none of this, has no idea that his brother is playing tenor and is actually killing it. Uh, eventually, Michael goes to uh, Indiana University himself. Randy is off on the road with Horace Silver and uh, Mike's uh, college band is you know, winning awards at the Notre Dame Jazz Festival. Uh, They get approached to to do a record deal. Uh, So the the agent who takes the band to Chicago to record demos, uh, Randy comes to Chicago with Horace Silver uh, to play a gig, a week-long gig. And there he runs into Michael at the uh, jamming pad where Mike had been living with his college band while doing this demo. Now he hears his brother Mike play tenor for the first time and basically it's like, holy shit, what is this? You know, it's this incremental leap. He hadn't seen the development. He was away on the road with Horace and now he's jamming with uh, Billy Cobham, And Randy went over to see his kid brother's college jazz band. Let's see what this is about. They were blown away. And Benny Maupin, the tenor player, who would be later in the Herbie Hancock's band, was with Horace Silver at the time. He saw Mike and he's like, his jaw dropped, you know. It's like, what the? Uh You know, so this was something that Randy had missed. His kid brother, who might have become a scientist, might have become a basketball player, you know emerged as this monster on tenor sax and it was soon after that that randy invited him to play on his first album in new york you know he's he comes to mike comes to new york to play on randy's first album score uh, a session at rudy van gelder's hallowed ground in 1969 and it comes out and mike is not quite fully formed, but is pretty amazing. When you hear the tracks that he plays on, there's a tune on that album score called Vamp, which is literally, it's like a funk, jazz funk kind of vamp with Larry Corey on guitar. And Mike is at that point channeling his inner Junior Walker, uh, kind of funky R&B. But at the same time, um, he's also got Coltrane as his North Stars.
0: So happy you've joined us. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour on WLIW uh, 83, 88.3 FM in Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. Uh, also heard at 90 on 96.9 as you go into Western Suffolk as we increase our listening area. Um, and this is an interview that we did with Bill Milkowski, jazz journalist Bill Milkowski. So one of the things that strikes me as a listener when you're telling the story, and I think maybe earlier we were talking about, uh, you know, 7th Avenue South is how this whole group of players uh, kind of got together and then morphed. But they seem to be like the core of this whole fusion movement with, with Jocko and others. And uh, when you do get your breath, tell us about some of that and how that, how that, relates to other things that you've observed, kind of like an anthropologist in the jazz world. Is this something that just kind of came together with these people and then over the years as their careers changed and morphed, um, it was all because of that kind of initial coming together?
1: Well, the club Seventh Avenue South was started by Mike and Randy, almost to have like a playhouse, like a clubhouse, Uh a place for them to play and hang with their friends. And uh, Kate Greenfield was their partner. She was sort of the hands on day to day manager of the place. Uh, And it attracted a like minded group of young jazz trained musicians who also had open minds to rock influence, certainly in the sense of rhythm sections and electric instruments. And uh, they sort of, it was a magnet. That club was a magnet for like minded people. Uh, and out of that sort of organically grew certain bands steps ahead came out of that experience of those guys, uh, playing together, uh, before that name, they, before they had that name, they were gigging in loose situations at seventh Avenue with Don Grolnick and, uh, and Eddie Gomez, uh, Mike Minieri, um, uh, uh you know, it was different guys leading from night to night. One night, if it was uh, Nick leading uh, and focusing on his compositions, he had a tag for the band, Idiot Savant. So that night it was Idiot Savant. If they were going to feature that, Mike Nick. Manieri's yeah. compositions one night. Then it was, he called it Steps. Uh-huh. And they initially went to uh, Japan and did some live recording and in-studio recording later found out that there was an existing I think rock band based in Virginia called Steps so they had to change the name to Uh Steps Ahead but all these groups uh Jocko's word of mouth band formed because um, Kate gave Jocko a almost like secret Monday night uh, to do something and he began uh, formulating charts for a large ensemble uh, there was a Monday night was sort of a big band night in New York. Gil Evans Monday night band at Sweet Basil was doing that thing, and other big bands were playing on Monday night. So Jocko formed this group and didn't advertise it, and just started holding these Monday night sessions. And people showed up word of mouth, you know, just they, those <laughs> in the know would come to see. Jocko playing these charts with horns and Michael Brecker and Bob Mincer, Randy, all these guys were in that situation. And it's sort of his word of mouth band grew out organically out of, I guess you would call it a rehearsal band that was playing at this clubhouse, Seventh Avenue South. Uh, So a lot of groups formed out of that gigging situation very organically. And it was for people like me, a place to go and watch this stuff, you know, get birthed and see new connections of people emerge from this, this one scene. Yeah. Uh, so it was an exciting time. And like I say, the movie, the music, uh, really emerged sort of grew out of it organically. And then also the scene, like Joni Mitchell had a, had a loft like two blocks down, from Seventh Avenue South. So she was there all the time. And at the time she was living with Don Elias, so he was there all the time. And through that connection, Michael Brecker got into Joni's Shadows and Light Tour, which happened in 78, 79 Uh with with Pat Metheny and uh, Lyle Mays, Don Elias played drums, Jocko on bass, Michael on tenor. Uh, That was the first time I saw Michael Brecker. I was living in Milwaukee. And he came through uh, nearby East Troy, which was about an hour away, uh, Alpine Valley uh, Music Theater, outdoor venue. And he came through on the Joni's Shadows and Light Tour, which I saw. And of course he was featured on that uh, tour, on that solo bass thing, similarly as he was with Weather Report, where the band leaves the stage and Jaco plays a solo thing with his primitive looping technology yeah. and did its whole show, Showtime thing. Uh, I first saw it uh, with Weather Report, but then saw it again with him and Joni. Uh, also down the block from 7th Avenue was John Belushi. So he was coming over. All these people were like hanging out, getting high. The music was going. The downstairs was a bar, no cover, but they had a good sound system from the upstairs piped in downstairs. So people huh? would come and hang. Bradford Marcellus, young Bradford Marcellus used to come there. And Bradford and Winton later got uh, played at 7th Avenue in Art Blakey's band when they were like very young. I remember seeing them both there. Uh, so it was an exciting place that a lot of people played at. A lot of people experimented and put some ideas together. Uh, there was another... Did you play there? Did
0: you, did you play there? Because I know you're, no, you're 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 no,
1: okay. no far too did you, intimidated.
0: But you played you played with Jocko, right? Because you talk about yeah, that
1: one. This time. is like man, like a couple of times just one-off gigs that were totally word of mouth. One was in okay. the East Village at a place called Neither Nor, uh and another was uh uh near what was that place called near Dan Lynch? man the night, night nightbirds, uh and that was usually around uh, uh focused around this guy james cannings who has since passed he was a guitar player and a reggae cat from a jamaica singer songwriter guitarist we would sit in with james and then it would morph into something else like i remember one time at neither nor playing with jocko and uh, we started doing this tune, uh, Power of Soul, from uh, Jimi Hendrix's uh, with uh, Buddy Miles and uh, Billy Cox. There's a tune that he did on that album, like Machine Gun was on that, uh, but this tune called Power of Soul. Uh, Jack was like, we're playing that tune. He's playing bass. He's, he sets up the groove and I start playing it, yeah. doubling it. And he comes and whispers to me while we're playing it, take my bass give me your guitar right <laughs> so I give him my guitar and I'm hooked up to wawa pedal uh-huh. distortion all this stuff uh-huh. he gives me the bass I you know without breaking stride we switch instruments on this tune uh, and uh, uh, man he just went for it with the wawa pedal and the distortion and uh-huh. playing Hendrix shit on the guitar so but that was just a fun one-off kind of a gig and I, those are the type of None of this stuff was advertised. It was just like you go to a gig and it's like, wow, Jocko's on base."
0: <laughs> the Jam Session Radio Hour is supported by Bayard Fenwick as a sponsor and underwriter. As part of the Terry Cohen team located at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate, Bayard is well-versed in the residential real estate market from Bridgehampton to East Hampton to Amagansett to Montauk. Byard believes there are three parts to the value of a property. Land value, improvements made to the property, and an emotional component. You can reach Bayard Fenwick at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate at 631-324-7575. That's 631-324-7575. The Jam Session Radio Hour is also supported by Oza Sabbath Architects of Bridgehampton, New York. Oza Sabbath Architects both designs and builds homes believing that a well-designed home suffuses our lives with the essential elements of balancing and recharging. Oza Sabbath Architects can be reached at ozasabbath.com. That's O-Z-A-S-A-B-B-E-T-H dot com. And at 631-808-3036. That's 631-808-3036. Thanks for joining us on 88.3 FM, WLIW, Southampton, New York. Also heard at WLIW.org slash radio. And as you go into Western Suffolk on 96.9 FM. Um, tonight we have part one of an interview with jazz journalist Bill know, Why do you think Jaco, I mean, why was he a bass player and not a guitar player?
1: I mean, he, Jocko was, uh, he played everything. He could play trumpet. He played sax. Uh, he played drums incredibly well. He and played performance. He,
0: he, he, he would play all these different instruments performing?
1: Uh, the only thing that I ever saw him perform was uh, piano. He played really great piano. Some of his tunes, there's great YouTube videos of him playing with uh, duets with Toots Thielemans. Uh, with Jocko on piano, acoustic Piano and Harmonica, uh, doing uh, Liberty City, Three Views of a Secret, uh, Jocko just uh, harmonically sussing out the tune. He was very accomplished at piano. Uh, he recorded some drums with Weather Report. His tune, Teen Town, he re- played drums on that.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, but, you know, he his instrument was the bass, and he reinvented that thing, and it was... Partly his genius it was intuitive, but also like, like Mike Brecker, he woodshed It it was, again, pretty naturally gifted, but he was deep in the woodshed all the time. Uh, you know, his brother told me that when they were growing up, Jocko would sit on the couch watching Jeopardy, answer, answering every question while running through lines or <laughs> doing scales, you know, without breaking. I wish he'd done
0: that on Jeopardy.
1: Yeah, without breaking the stride on the scale, he was like, you know, what is the capital of whatever? He's, he's answering everyone, you know. He's, so he, he never sort put of it a, down. It was like he was sort me. of a brilliant genius cat, man. Yeah. And then once he got the idea, the notion to uh, remove the frets from his bass and play a fretless bass that allowed him to vocalize, slide up to notes and create a more vocal approach to his lines, that was it. That was the whole new news on that one.
2: But there have
0: been uh, like fretless acoustic basses long before that, right? But he just
1: removed yes, it. But he, he, he did it with the electric, you know, his instrument was the electric bass guitar. And he, he, as he used to say, he played it acoustically. I mean, he,
2: right.
1: he always said the sounds in your hands. He didn't really have pedals or anything. A lot of people were trying to emulate Jocko, copy him, and asking, you know, what kind of pedals are, is Jocko using? And his retort was, it's in my hands.
0: Yeah, it's in my the hands. The
1: sound is in your hands, you know. And he really had a gift. He had uh, his—he had incredibly large hands. He did these stretches harmonically that were sort of impossible. Uh, another guy who does, who did that was Alan Holdsworth on guitar. He got such voicings on the instrument that were a direct product of his incredibly long fingers but yeah Jocko by virtue of of his curiosity and his probing on the instrument pushed forward to something that didn't exist before him it was definitely genius i mean that's sort of the webster de- definition of that term he did something that didn't exist before him yeah. he reimagined the instrument to You know, I mean, he was saying that one of his big influences was Frank Sinatra. You know, the phrasing behind the beat and the vocal phrasing of a line. Uh, You know, when he did that uh, little uh, bit uh, live with Weather Report and Joni Mitchell, he some he called it slang, where he comes out and just plays solo. He the way he would he would always incorporate the tune, uh, The Sound of Music. Uh the hills are alive with the sound of music his (laughs) phrasing on that was so beautifully sinatra you know if you will and uh so that was i mean that came out on some of the tunes that joe zaminal wanted him to uh phrase his on on that instrument on that fretless instrument in doing a tribute to cannibal Adderley, joe's mentor who had just passed Joe wrote a song for him called Cannonball. And he said, Jocko, you know, I want you to play this tune. Jocko, on the first take, played way too busy, too much chops. Yeah. Was still trying to impress. And then he's like, no, 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 no. Just relax. This is my ode to my mentor. Come out and play that beautiful fretless singing thing. And on that tune, you'll hear it if you... Nice. Up, uh, Cannonball from the Black Market album you'll hear this incredibly vocal and very poignant uh, approach to that uh, electric fretless bass guitar which brings the instrument to the foreground
2: I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.
0: So happy you've joined us. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour on WLIW uh, 8388.3 FM in Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. Uh, also heard at 90 on 96.9 as you go into Western Suffolk as we increase our listening area. Um, and this is an interview that we did with Bill Milkowski, jazz journalist Bill Milkowski. Uh,
1: likewise to make the connection to Mike Brecker, uh, Mike in a beautiful record that he did with uh, the great German composer and arranger, Klaus Ogerman uh, did this album in 1982 called Cityscape. And that was the very concept of that album where Klaus wanted to use Mike as the singer of the songs, of these yeah. beautiful songs,
2: Yeah.
1: orchestral. Mike's very beautiful voice is out front singing this sort of dark, but poignant, orchestral music on that beautiful album. And uh, that was done in 82. That was a step forward for Mike beyond the Brecker Brothers, which had always relied on the connection between Mike and Randy. And Randy, being such a prolific composer, uh, wrote the bulk, the lion's share of the material for that band. And it was primarily based on these very intricate and Almost impossible Unison lines that highlighted their incredible chemistry. But in this uh, Klaus Ogerman album, 82, this is after Mike and Randy had decided to stop the Brecker Brothers. So Mike's first statement is slowing down, not doing these incredibly fast and intricate jumping intervallically lines that was a signature of the Brecker brothers. He's relaxed and he's singing these beautiful tunes with breath and soul and letting some inner soul come to the fore. And this is five years before he did his own first album as a leader. So it's a sort of an important moment for Mike in 82 to do that, to be the soul singing voice on this beautiful album, Cityscape. And that of course would lead to his own albums as a leader and where he began Uh, his whole blossoming as a composer.
0: Well, that was fascinating. Um, More to come next week as we go into part two of our interview with Bill Malkowski. Um, We appreciate you joining us uh, and uh, we appreciate uh, the fact that you probably have um, increased your jazz knowledge and will continue to increase it as you pay some attention to uh, his website, which is BillMilkowski.com and uh, to his great work that he's done over time. You have been listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour. We want to thank uh, the people involved in the Jam Session Radio Hour, in particular Rafael Alvarez, who does our sound recording, um, and uh, Claes Brandahl, our music director. Pay attention to coming things that are coming with the Hamptons Jazz Fest. The Hamptons Jazz Fest will be coming up next on May 20th in its winter series, and that'll be John Irabigan. Um, And that's going to take place starting at 6 o'clock. The door's open at 6 at Southampton Art Center in Southampton, New York, at 25 Jobs Lane. Um, the Hamptons Jazz Fest will continue to come up uh, for you this summer, July, August, September, as we continue to bring you some of the best jazz uh, to the Hamptons. Also... I want to mention uh, the Jam Session, which is uh, back and going, and going great, um, and it is taking place at the uh, at the Venerable Masonic Hall, which is upstairs from the Sag Harbor Whaling Museum in Sag Harbor on Main Street. And that's Tuesday nights from 7 to 9 led by our music director, Kleas Brandall and it's a great hang. Uh, it's really, really a fun evening. Uh, we have our own little jazz club going there. So thank you to the Masons uh, for that, for having us there, and for giving us the opportunity to bring the Jam Session back. Um, again, thanks to those involved with uh, what we're doing with the Jam Session Radio Hour. We appreciate you guys being with us. Uh, we appreciate our, our underwriters, Oza Sabbath Architects, Byard Fenwick III of Saunders Real Estate, We appreciate uh, um, working with WLIW that brings this this program to you and all that they all that they do. So thanks for being with us. Uh, Stay well. Take care of yourselves. And good night for the Jam Session Radio Hour.